0: This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au Heavenly Father, thank you Lord uh, for your word. Thank you that you speak to us through your truth, that you haven't left us in darkness. Um, You haven't left us um, in despair, but you have given us the light of your truth. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Today we continue in the fourth talk that's part of a series of about seven talks in total where we've been looking at the story, the life of a man named Jacob whose name in Hebrew we've already been told uh, means deceiver, Um, deceiver by name, deceptive uh, by nature and yet it's all about what it means for him to live in the grip of God's grace, that is no matter how sinful sneaky, cunning, conniving. Um, Jacob is, uh, no matter how divided, dysfunctional, uh, complicated his family might be, uh, God's grace, God's faithfulness in fulfilling his promise will come to pass. I don't know what your week's been like. I'm not sure where your life's at. But what I need you to remember as you walk away from the talk this morning is that We have a God who makes promises and he intends on making those promises. No matter how messy our lives are, how complicated our lives might be, um, how guilt-ridden we may feel, how far away we have run from God, no matter what those things that have happened in our lives, God wants us to know that he pursues us. He wants to love us. He wants to help us to grow, to mature, and to become more like his son Jesus. And so the big idea for today is God is still faithful in fulfilling his promises despite our sinfulness. Um, His promises to love, save, to transform, to be present amongst us, and to use us to be a blessing to those around us. Uh, There may be times... In our lives, where we encounter, experience difficulties. Now, I need to be careful here. Uh, sometimes, but not always, it's God's way of disciplining us. Uh, it's his way of refining us. Now, I'm not suggesting for a moment that we can live our lives in disobedience to God. God's grace uh, shouldn't be taken for granted. And it is not a license, not a permission for us to continue living a life of sin. But the main point is that God is faithful even though we might be foolish. God is faithful even though people may be fickle. God is still able to use broken people to achieve his purposes. Uh, during the week, I read the story of um, uh, Abraham and Sarah to a group of guys about how Abraham and Sarah, uh, old in age, they're childless. God makes them a promise that he will give them a son and heir. But then his wife, Sarah, becomes impatient. And in order to fast-track the process because of her doubt, her lack of trust in God, she suggests to Abraham, go and sleep with our servant Hagar, and therefore you will have, you know, a son. And that's exactly what he does. And just as I was about to teach the passage, one of the guys in the chapel service piped up and he said, that sounds so messed up. Um, Why would God use messy people like that for his purposes? And my response is that despite, you know, man's sinfulness, despite, you know, our brokenness, God uses these kinds of people in the Bible today to achieve his promises and purposes. God's faithfulness, his goodness, uh, is not derailed, is not diminished by our own sinfulness. But before we look at that, the big idea of God's faithfulness, despite our sinfulness, let me just give you a recap or bring you up to speed of where things are at. Jacob's father, uh, Isaac, he's old, blind, nearing the end of his life. Uh, Jacob, with the help of his mother, Rebekah, they uh, went behind his older brother Esau's back. They deceive his father, Isaac, uh, tricked him, um, misled him. And what ends up happening is that Jacob steals Esau's blessing. Esau holds this grudge against younger brother Jacob. And he decides that once their dad, Isaac, passes away, he's going to kill Jacob. Uh, Their mother, Rebekah, finds out about this plot, this plan. And so she tells Jacob, advises him to go to her brother Laban uh, and stay there until the fury of Esau subsides. Uh, Isaac, also fearful for his youngest son, um, he agrees with Rebekah. And he too tells Jacob to leave, not to marry any women where they were currently living because they didn't believe in God, um, but instead go to his uncle, find a wife, get married, start a family. Uh, Jacob listens. He takes on board this advice. For Jacob, anywhere else is better than hanging around home where it's unsafe around his older brother Esau. Uh, Here's a brief, you know, just rundown background to Esau. Esau despised his birthright. In Genesis 25, he made certain choices in his life that brought great grief to his parents in chapter 26. Even Isaac, his father, said of him that he will live by the sword and he will be a wanderer in chapter 27. And finally, everything that Esau did, he did intentionally to displease his parents in chapter 28. I don't think, um, when you look at the life of Esau, you may have noticed that This guy has some serious personal issues. Rebellious, disobedient, bitter, angry, furious, enraged, and hell-bent on seeking vengeance. Uh, And so this brings us now to this chapter, 29, where Jacob flees Esau, leaves his home, separated from his parents, travels alone, comes, we're told, to the land of the people of the east. Jacob doesn't go because he wants to, but because he has to. Uh, But let's not forget, he's not this innocent victim, suffering at the hands of an angry, older, oppressive, overbearing brother. Jacob got himself into this mess. Uh, He's suffering the consequences of his own sins. After all, he did deceive his father and his brother. Another point worth noting is that unlike his grandfather, Abraham... Abraham, before Jacob, left his home country and people. Why? Because he believed the promise that God gave him, the promise of blessing, great name, and many descendants, great nation. Jacob, on the other hand, he leaves his home and his family for a very different reason, Uh, not because he believed God's promise. He certainly knew of it. He was aware of it concerning his own life. But his problem was he took matters into his own hands. Just like his grandmother, Sarah, his mother, Rebecca, he behaved in a way that provoked the anger of his older brother, Esau. The consequences of these many sins, lies, deception, dishonesty, dishonour, conspiracy and stealing was that he now was a fugitive on the run. And so the question is, will God still fulfil the promises he made Jacob? Because as you can see so far in the story, he's alone. No home. It seems like he, not Esau, is the wanderer. Uh, Jacob has to not only deal with this, but he will soon be confronted by a dodgy uncle named Laban. Let's now have a closer look at this particular chapter. Verse 1 says that Jacob went on his journey. Uh, Literal translation, Jacob lifted up his feet. After his dream... In chapter 28, which was the focus of last week's talk, God appeared to him, Uh, he reassured him that his presence will be upon him and will never depart him. Jacob was so encouraged, energized uh, by his dream that he was positive, optimistic and there was this noticeable spring in his step. Even though Jacob was on the run, but God was with him. And he may have been thinking at that time, it's okay, God's got my back, it's all going to work out. We're told in verse 2 that he finds a well in a field. Three flocks of sheep, shepherds gathered together. We're also told in verse 3 that the actual place at this particular well was that when the sheep gathered the practice was, when enough shepherds came together, they rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well, watered the sheep, and then put it back in its place. Jacob wasn't interested in sheep. The first place he comes to is the world. The first people he comes across are shepherds. And believe it or not, this is quite significant in Jacob's life. Why? You see, Jacob knew the story of how his father Isaac met his mother Rebekah. Jacob knew the story of how his grandfather Abraham sent his own servant back where he came from to get a wife for his son Isaac. And what happened was his servant arrives also at a will. And it's at that will the servant meets Rebekah and travels back and Rebecca gets married to Isaac. When Jacob came to this world, he, his expectations must have risen. He knew that wells weren't just places where sheep get watered, but wells were places where historically, personally for him, in his family's experience, providentially, like his father Isaac, he might meet his wife on that day. We're told in verse 4 to 6 that after meeting the shepherds, Jacob wastes no time. Cuts to the chase. Ask the right and relevant questions. This guy's on a mission, an objective in mind. Didn't come this far to hang out with fleet investors, sheep, and shepherds. If God promised him that He will bless him, make him fruitful, multiply him, give him descendants, none of these things are possible without a wife. He was waiting, watching. How is God going to work this out? What will He do next? He was the most eligible bachelor of Mesopotamia. Wants a wife, and God was going to do something. How that would look like will be marked with unexpected twists and turns. The kind of stuff that makes a soap opera look average. You don't, you you don't write this stuff. You know, only in the Bible you find this kind of stuff. When, When, when I got this passage to preach, and I was like, why me? Do I have to preach on you know one guy who marries two women? This is crazy, complicated. But what we need to remember is that God is faithful, he is sovereign, in control, God's promises will come to pass. Next, Jacob finds out the shepherds are from Haran. They know his uncle, his uncle is Will, and lo and behold, who turns up? Rachel. We're told in verse 7 to 8 that Jacob is surprised how idle these shepherds are. Even telling them, water the sheep, go and pasture them. But the shepherds disagree, and what you find is that they are as motivated as much as your local council worker. We're told in verse 9 that while Jacob is talking with the shepherds, Rachel turns up with her father's sheep because she was a shepherdess. And the interesting thing is that verse 10 says that as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, he rolled the stone from the mouth of the well and helped Rachel water her father's flock. What usually takes a number of shepherds to do, Jacob accomplishes it all on his own. And I don't know about you, but you might remember that earlier on in the chapters of Genesis, we were told that Jacob's older brother Esau, Esau the skill hunter, Esau the guy of the open country, hairy, loud, extroverted, possibly wore khaki clothes and a Kubra hat, drove a four-cylinder turbocharged cylinder utility, had game dogs, hunted with a hunting rifle, and was never, ever invited to a Christmas party by the animal activist groups. Jacob, very different, quiet, introverted, loved the indoors, loved cooking, probably even wore chinos, and came from the inner west. (laughs) Esau, not Jacob, is the one you would expect to move this big stone, with human strength capable of doing these great feats. But love does crazy things for some people and so it was with Jacob. For Jacob, the moment he saw Rachel, he was filled with so much joy. At last, this is the divine confirmation from on high that God is in this. As one commentator put it, every ounce of of manliness rose in Jacob, as he did the equivalent, what I consider the clean and jerk in Olympic weightlifting or flipping the tyre in CrossFit or MMA training. It's crazy, explosive, efficient, with such ease. Not a problem. Jacob was the man. The shepherds were shocked. Rachel, who came last, was now first. She's the one who gets to water her father's flock. Verse 11 says that as soon as this was all over, Jacob planted a kiss on Rachel. With a burst of emotion, a combination of both overwhelming relief and joy, Jacob wept aloud. Verse 12 says that Jacob tells Rachel who he is. And Rachel turns ahead, runs ahead, sorry, and tells her father Laban. Verse 13 says that Laban hears the news. He runs to greet Jacob, embraces him, kisses him, brings him to his house. One commentator wrote, at first glance, everything seems to be going according to plan. Jacob finds the right world, the right family, I might add, the right girl. And God's providential guidance is apparent. God is truly with Jacob as promised. However, there's an issue. Uncle Laban. Initially, on the surface, he seems hospitable, but there's a twist. Some have suggested that Laban's words in verse 14, that Jacob is his own bones, surely his flesh, is Laban's realization that Jacob came empty-handed, and that he's left with no other choice but welcome him, not as a cheerful host, but a reluctant one. Jacob may have seen things differently. His perspective at the time, God's promise, provision, protection, presence, obvious. Everything was starting to come together. The pieces were starting to fall into place. That's how Jacob probably saw it. At least it seemed that way at first glance. But let's not forget, although Jacob arrives with promises, he's a man without means. Laban saw things differently. Remember, back in chapter 24 of Genesis, Abraham's servant turns up, turns up with a camel train, filled with gifts. And the first thing that the servant gives Rebekah, Jacob's mother, gold ring, two gold bracelets, many garments, and even two Laban, costly ornaments. Initially, the news of Jacob's arrival made Laban hopeful. Is these small gifts, riches, wealth? That's what he probably thought. But instead, Jacob arrived on foot, empty-handed. Laban was full of excitement. Later, disappointed and deflated. What Jacob didn't realize was that he would soon be at the mercy of a man who took advantage of others, exploited others for his own good. Jacob the deceiver was about to be deceived. Jacob was going to finally meet his match. At last, Jacob would finally learn what it's like to be on the receiving end, cheated, outwitted, experiencing pain. What his brother Esau experienced, he will now go through. Jacob needed to be pruned. At least that was, that's what God thought. Disciplined. Humbled. He needed to be more compassionate, gracious, merciful. He needed to stop being self-seeking, self-centered, stop trusting in himself. God didn't leave Jacob at, the, at this point in the passage. He was starting to work on him. As he always had all along. Shaping him. Stretching him. Growing him like never ever before. Let me just say up front. Just putting it out there. That when God disciplines his children. It's not because he hates us. But it's because he loves us. It's not because he wants to beat us down. But his intention is to build us up. It's not because he wants to destroy us but he wants to develop our character. It's not because he wants to stifle our growth but he wants to see us flourish, mature and grow. God's decision to discipline his children is never pleasant, sometimes uncomfortable, inconvenient, painful, even feels unbearable but the ultimate goal is growth, godliness, maturity. God's chosen instrument in this process for Jacob was Laban. In verse 15, the sly, deceptive, old fox uncle Laban tries to sound like, look like, that he's being generous. Being generous when he raises with him the question about wages. But in verse 16, Laban knows that he's the one with the advantage. He has the upper hand. He has two daughters, an older one, a younger one, Leah, Rachel. We're told in verse 17 that Leah's eyes were weak, whereas Rachel, beautiful in form and appearance. And commentators believe that uh, the weakness of her eyes, the older sister, meant that she lacked a sparkle, a glow, fire. And so you have here the distinction between older sister and younger sister. However, verse 18 clearly tells us that Jacob loved Rachel. Jacob loved Rachel so much that later on in that verse we're told, Jacob made an agreement with her father that he would work for seven years for his youngest daughter, her hand in marriage, Rachel. And verse 19 says that Laban agreed. Three years, reasonable. Four years, pretty generous. But seven years, double the standard dowry in duration, was an indication of how much Jacob loved Rachel. And that's exactly why we're told in the second part of verse 20, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for Rachel. In verse 21, Jacob says to Laban to give him his wife so he can go into her for his time is completed. Jacob had fulfilled his part, his end of the agreement, You can't help but but suspect that maybe Laban was dragging this out. Maybe Laban was attempting to extort more from Jacob. Nevertheless, Jacob, direct, clear, assertive, time's up. He wanted to spend the rest of his life with his bride. At first, Laban looks like he's going to honor his end of the agreement doing the right thing, hosting the wedding feast, uh, where in verse 22, he gathers together all the people. Both families probably attended, community was invited, Uh, marriage contract read aloud publicly, and the groom wraps his cloak around his bride, and the two go into the tent, and the marriage is consummated. But there's a problem here. We're told in verse 23 that, as one writer put it, Laban used the veiling of the bride, lateness of the evening, heavy consumption of much wine to switch the bride. And verse 25 says that much to Jacob's disbelief, he wakes up in the morning and he's freaking out. He's thinking, What, what is Leah doing in my tent? This is one incident in the Bible that I still find hard to get my head around. How does that happen? <laughs> Either it was that dark and he was that drunk, or Laban is so deceitful he takes deception to another level. <laughs> Either way, both could be true. But judging on Jacob's reaction, he knows he's been tricked. Jab- Jacob questions Laban, pointing out how he fulfilled his agreement. He's end. And in addition, the surprising thing that comes out in all of this is that Jacob asked Laban why he had deceived him. The deceiver has been deceived. The deceiver is asking why is he being deceived by Laban. At long last, Jacob knew what what it was like. He knew the pain, the suffering of what it was like to be cheated. He was on the receiving end. He was now a victim. He suffered at the hands of a callous and calculated manipulator. Jacob was humbled and yet he was still at the mercy of Laban since he still wasn't married to Rachel. Laban pulls out the cultural card in verse 26. He tells Jacob, in our country, it's our custom that we don't give away the youngest before the eldest. And his advice in verse 27 to Jacob, complete the first week of marriage festivities and work an additional seven years in return for Rachel's hand in marriage. Can you just imagine the thoughts that would have been racing through Jacob's mind? Seven years of labor, seven years of waiting only to be told you've got to do it all over again. The concession was he got Rachel straight away. But surely, at some point, Jacob would have wondered whether or not God's promise of blessings, descendants, of presence, provision, couldn't it have come any easier than this? This is tough. It's difficult. For the first time in his life, Jacob had to learn two things. Trust in God, wait on him patiently. This is not something that came easily, naturally, to Jacob. He was a doubter, impatient. He liked to do things on his own terms, but now things were beyond his control. Vulnerable, powerless, victim of deception, extortion, manipulation, and injustice, and yet all he had to hold on to was a promise from God. Even though there's no mention of his faith in this part of the chapter, But the one underlying theme that we see is that God is in control. God is faithful. God never breaks his promise. God, unlike Laban, keeps his word. When we suffer in life, we have two options. We either flee from God or we draw near to God. We either push back on God or we surrender to God. We either keep trusting him or doubting him. We either believe in the lie that God is absent or we are still confident that he is present even in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of the messy lives that we live. Two months ago, the man who led me to Christ over 20 years ago lost his 19-year-old son, youngest of three children, in a tragic single-car accident due to micro-sleep on a rural road in WA. His son was very good friends with our eldest daughter, went to the same playgroup, attended the same Sunday school, uh, went to the same school, and what I... I was deeply and profoundly moved and encouraged by, was my friend's words when we spoke on the phone the night after the police turned up at his house to share the tragic news. And his words were this, my son is gone, Only only the Lord knows why. He is in control and I'm going to keep trusting him. Honestly, I don't know how i would respond under similar circumstances. But I know this, it's so easy to trust God when things are going well. It's so much harder to trust him when things are difficult. Messy, complicated. Jacob's life was messy. But God didn't walk away. I came across a quote the other day by the late Elizabeth Elliott, former wife of the American missionary Jim Elliott, who passed away 60 years ago, was martyred, killed by Indians in Ecuador. And she wrote, If you believe in God who controls the big things, you have to believe God who controls the little things. All things, major, trivial, big, small, whatever it is. Isn't it true? We're told in verse 28. That like the first time, here it is, this time Jacob completes another seven additional years. Basically, Jacob worked four full dowries, 14 years in total for the woman he loved. And he didn't just get Rachel, but get this, he also gets Leah, and in addition, two female servants. We're told in verse 30 that Jacob married Rachel and Jacob loved her more than Leah. And usually, this love story, this wedding story, ends with the line, "And they lived happily ever after." I know, but, you, but when I read this, Jacob's, you know, family, his story, the background, I think myself, I thought my life was comp- my life was complicated. I thought my family was messed up. It's so encouraging to know that the Bible is real. It's raw. It's vulnerable. Life is complicated. Life is messy. Because what we have now, as one writer put it, you know, this is in Jacob's life a recipe for misery. And life here, east of the Garden of Eden, in this fallen and corrupted world, is full of sin, corruption, depravity, indifference to God. What you have is two sisters married to the same guy, one beautiful, the other less beautiful. One is loved, the other is unloved. And then you have these two maids, additional women, who end up being Jacob's concubines. I told you, it's complicated. It's like the guy who said to me during the week, this is messed up, along with other colourful language that he added alongside when I spoke to him in maximum security. Jacob arrives empty-handed, unmarried. 14 years later, he gets the wife, he gets his older sister, and he gets two concubines. Bigamy, polygamy, tension, inner conflict within the family. I don't know about you, but when I look at something like that, I think to myself, what hope is there, at least at a human level, from my perspective? However, Jacob's family, as you can see, was broken. And the truth is, our lives as well, our past, our families, our upbringing, our lineage is full of many complexities. And the question that still remains, how does God still fulfill his promises despite Laban and his deception? Despite Jacob and his experience of suffering injustice? And without stealing, Matt's thunder, who will be speaking to us from the next part of Genesis... From these four women, especially Leah. Poor Leah, unloved Leah. We get the 12 sons of Israel. The nation, God's people. And the promise of being fruitful, many descendants from the line of Abraham, Isaac, and now this patriarch Jacob will happen. The only thing is, it's not how we would have planned it out, how we would have imagined it. You see, all along it always seems that God's promise is under attack. Sinfulness, falsehood, people scheming against one another. But the truth is, in this chaos, in this disorder, God is still able to fulfill his promise. This morning you might be thinking, I'm too far gone, I'm too sinful, I'm too broken, I'm too lost, beyond forgiveness, beyond saving, beyond God's redemptive and restorative work in Jesus. There's no hope for me. And I want to tell you, that's a lie. It's a lie. As we have heard through the story of Jacob, God is in the business of rescuing his people. No one is beyond his grace. Because of Jesus, he loves us. He pursues us the furthest and fastest that we try to run and flee from him. His grace outruns us. And he works on us, transforms us blesses us so that we will be a blessing to the nations. And the only way we can experience and live this out, this fulfilment of God's promise, first to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and to us, people of faith, is by repenting and believing in Jesus. When it comes to messy people and a sovereign God, who's in control and will fulfill his promise, it reminds me of how we chaplains were sitting together one day having lunch and we were discussing how a guy who was in Supermax on terrorism charges gets the Bible, opens it up to the Gospel of Jesus, reads through the pages and then he realized in his own words that Jesus of Nazareth is alive. And the hatred and the anger and the violence and the vengeance that is in his heart subsides. Until he has this personal, intimate encounter with the living Lord. Why? Because as God's people, he wants to bless us. He wants to show us his grace, his favor, and use us for his glory and the joy of many. Let me pray. Father God, we want to thank you, Lord, that you are a God who's faithful to your promises, whether it was Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or to us today. And all of that has been fulfilled and realized in the life, in the work, the death and resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, help us to trust you, help us to draw near to you, help us to keep on being certain of the fact that you are the God who is in the business of restoration. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.